Well, isn't it good to be in church this morning? Amen. Amen. Praise God. Well, I don't know about you, but Christmas is one of my favorite times of the year. Absolutely favorite times. Uh, I've loved it from the, you know, when I was a kid and, and all the way on. Always for the right reasons. Never cared about the gift. You know, even as a child, just loved the Lord. No, I'm just kidding. That's, of course, not true. But uh, and like my mom always says, she says, well, of course you love Christmas. You don't do anything. You don't cook anything. You don't, and that's, but this year, you know, we, every year we do a little more, a little more, you know, but that's what grandmas are supposed to do. So I don't worry, I don't really worry about it. That's how supposed to be. But anyway, no, I love Christmas. It's such a wonderful time. And, and I understand it brings a lot of emotions for different people, especially, um, if you lost loved ones or things like that, sometimes the holidays are hard. Sometimes people have sad emotions that are attached to the holidays. But however you feel about the holidays, really, all of our focus and attention should be on the real reason that we celebrate Christmas, which, of course, is the birth of our Savior. Now, the birth of our Savior doesn't really mean much uh, unless you know what his life accomplished. In other words, it's great he was born, but the birth itself didn't really do anything. It was what happened 33 years later on the cross that changed everything. So the birth is significant, and we celebrate it, but without, without the cross, it doesn't really mean much. Let's look together in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. We've been in a series called Fellowship, and, and we're going to kind of continue in that this morning, even though we're going to talk about some, uh, some of the Christmas story as well. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. This is the, the story of the shepherds. I know y'all are wondering about this whiteboard. We're going to get to it in a minute. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. It's, now, this is the story of the shepherds, and, and I love this story because it's always intrigued me of why did God find it necessary to send Gabriel, you know, a messenger angel of the Lord, to send him to a bunch of shepherds in the field. They had no connection to this story, right? I mean, you got, you got Joseph and Mary down here in a, in a stable. You got the wise men. You kind of understand that because they were connected with Daniel. But these shepherds, they have no connection to, to the story other than <clears throat> I believe God was trying to signify and, 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 let, and announce that th this is the type of people that the Savior came for. And that, I love this part because they were just very ordinary people. And for whatever reason, in a lot of churches, it's the ordinary people that don't always feel comfortable, right? You got people that are super spiritual, people that are very, you know, they already know God, they, they love God, they know the Bible, you know, uh, through and through. And how many of you felt like that? You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you felt like that when you came to church at a certain point in your life, you came, you're like, man, I feel like I stick out like a sore thumb. I'm like, everybody in this place knows scriptures. Everybody understands the sermons. It seems like everybody's really holy. Then you stuck around for a while. You found out there was a little more to that story. But at first, that's how it felt. Like You felt really out of place, right? And that's not my story because I was born in church. I don't ever remember not being in church. But a lot of people, that when they came in, that's how it was. Like, man, I don't, I don't feel... But then you get stories like this where God shows up to a group of dirty shepherds. They've got no Bible training. They're not even looking for the Messiah. They're just average, hardworking, callous on their hands, you know, men out there sitting around a campfire. And the angel shows up and he says, I have good news for you. And I identify with the shepherds. I identify with them because that's kind of how, you know, I was raised in the country, you know, and, and I like all that stuff. And the fact that God showed up to them, man, that tells you who God thinks is important. It tells you who God values. And that's why I love, that's the favorite part of the Christmas story for me is the story of the shepherds. So we're going to read it, verse 8. It says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Now, here's what I want you to know. This morning, what we're going to talk about has the power to cause your spirit to be born again if you're not already born again and if you've not been saved. There are some things we talk about that doesn't necessarily have that power, but what we're talking about this morning is the gospel. And the Bible is so clear that when we believe the God, when we hear 
and believe the gospel that there's a supernatural transformation that can happen in our lives. And even if you're already saved, you can, you can be empowered this morning. You can be impacted this morning by this message. But you got to understand that, that what we're about to go through, this is the message that changes lives. Okay? This is the message that, that causes salvation to come into a person's life. So don't listen to it like the Christmas story. I want you to listen to it as the message, the central message of the gospel and the central message of salvation, okay? So God sends Gabriel from the throne room of God with a message. And, and if you read earlier in Luke, there's kind of a funny story where he sends Gabriel as well to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And so uh, Gabriel shows up to Zechariah and he says, you're going to have... Uh, this miraculous, your wife is going to have this miraculous birth. John's going to be born. He's going to be great. Tells him all these things. And then John, in sort of disbelief, goes, uh, how is that possible? I'm old and all of these things. And the angel, Gabriel, you, you could almost see Gabriel being confounded by this strange human that is questioning the words of God. It's almost like he doesn't even understand. He goes, this is how he responds. He goes, I, I just came from the throne room of God, and I brought a message to you, and you're questioning it. And he says, you're not even going to be able to speak until the baby is born. And some people look at that, and they think that's an act of punishment. But I almost wonder if he shut his mouth because his words of, of unbelief could have affected what was going to happen. So he shut his mouth, he said. And, and you could see the Gabriel being confounded because he's like, Everything God has ever spoken has come to pass. He literally spoke the worlds into existence. Just He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be planets, and there were planets. He said, let there be animals, and there were animals. So his words, they've never not come to pass. If one single word that he ever spoke didn't come to pass, the, the whole system would break down and fall apart. The Bible actually says that it's by the words of his power that everything's being held together. Science will tell you it's gravity, even though they don't even know what gravity is. But anyway, it's all being held together. We're, we're floating around right now in blackness in other space, and the earth is just for, you know, however long, been flying around the sun. If y'all don't think that's a little weird. But, you know, the Bible says he hung the earth on nothing. It's suspended. And everything's being held by the, the word of his power. So Gabriel is just confounded. Zachariah's like, well, how do I know this is going to be? He's like, What? Who, who questions the words of God? What is wrong with you? So I'm saying that to, you got to understand that when, the, when these angels speak, this isn't arbitrary. It's like, oh, that's cool. These, they don't even say their own thing. They're not even allowed to say their own thing. They're bringing a message straight from God. And they would dare not utter a comma or a, or a dot over an eye like out of place. They're going to say it exactly as God told them to say it. That's their whole purpose and whole existence. Especially for Gabriel, he was a messenger angel to bring this message and say it exactly as God said it. You ever had somebody in your life, you told them to go tell somebody something, and then you found out later they added a bunch of stuff you didn't say? Okay, angels don't do that. So whatever is about to come out of his mouth is the message from, from the beginning of the earth that God planned to announce. Okay, and this is what he said. The angel shows up and he says, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you, first of all, good tidings, which means good news. In other words, what I'm about to tell you is good news. And you're going to find out why. He said, I bring you good news and also great joy. The news that you're about to hear is going to cause tremendous joy to come in your life when you find out what it is, which will be to all people. In other words, this news that's going to bring great joy is for everyone. No one is excluded. And I know if we've heard this message a lot of times that that gets you kind of numb to it. But the fact that every single human being that was ever created is invited to sit down at the table of our Lord... The, the, the idea that every single 
outcast, every single person, the lowest of society, the worst sinner, the most self-righteous person. All, he says everyone is invited. This news is for all people. Now, this was news to them because that wasn't how it was at this time. You had the Jews, and then you had the Gentiles. You had people of a certain race that were favored by God, and then you had everybody else, and they wouldn't even eat with them. They wouldn't even fellowship with them. They wouldn't even talk to them because they, they were looked at as you know, uncircumcised people that are out of the covenant of God, and we are the covenant people of God. And then this angel comes, and he says, No, this news that I'm giving you, it's for everyone. There's no one Excluded. Isn't that good? Verse 11 For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, So all of a sudden the, the, the sky filled with all sorts of angels and heavenly beings, and they all begin singing, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Why peace? Why goodwill? Well, because we didn't have peace with God. This is the problem. This is the, this is the problem that's trying to be solved. This is the issue right here. Man and God were not at peace. There was hostility the Bible says, between God and man. Now, have you ever had a relationship in your life that there is like a division or there's a, there's a schism or there's constant friction or there's constant strife? I don't like living like that. I don't know about you, but I don't like to have any strife in my life. And if there's an issue, I want to solve it. I don't like to let that strife just be there. I want to deal with it. I want to take care of it. I want to solve it. I don't like that feeling of having strife with someone. But can you imagine having division, having strife with God? Like there's a division between you and God, even if you don't know it. And you're walking around every day and you're on earth and you're living your life, but the creator of the universe has, a, has something against you. There's a debt against your name. And, you, and even if you don't know it, when you stand before him on that day, you're going to find out about it. And it's not going to be good. But this angel is coming and he's saying, the, the great divide... Between God and man. This great hostility between God and man. He said, the news that I'm announcing is that now there is going to be peace. There is going to be peace between God and man. Not just peace. He says goodwill toward men. So they, they sing, glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth and goodwill Towards men. In other words, God has nothing but kindness. This is the definition of goodwill. A kind, helpful, or friendly feeling or attitude. Did you know that God had a kind, helpful, friendly feeling and attitude toward you? Some of us don't feel like that because we, all we can see is all of our bad points and our negative points. And we don't know how God feels about us. But this angel came and announced. He said, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. You know, I could have everybody in the world mad at me, but if God loves me and God is for me, that's all that matters. And on the other hand, if everybody in the world loves you and thinks you're great, but God's mad at you or you got a problem with God, then it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. And so here we find out how God feels about us. Peace from God and goodwill toward men. In other words, I have nothing but good feelings towards you. I, have, I want nothing but the best from you. I don't want to punish you. I don't want to judge you. See, they were confused about that. Even when Jesus came, they were asking about it. And he said, no, no, the Son of Man didn't come to judge. He didn't come to condemn the world. The purpose of the coming of the Son of God was not co condemnation. The purpose of the coming of the Son of God was reconciliation. That God and man would be reconciled. God's one of those ones that if he wanted you squashed like a bug, he could, he could, it already would have happened. That's not what he wants. He doesn't want judgment for you. He wants reconciliation. 
So what was this peace, this joy, this goodwill? What was this message that they were proclaiming? Because they didn't fully understand the gospel message at this point. They just have angels appearing in the sky saying, man, there's some good things coming. God has good feelings towards you. But did they understand who Jesus was, that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world? Did they understand that his death was going to mean their forgiveness? No, they didn't understand any of that. So what... What was that message? What really is the Christmas story? Well, I have a little whiteboard up here because I want to show you. Uh, I just want to give you a little, a little visual example this morning. Um, so when you go through life, so first of all, let's just put this up here. I'm going to say, this is me and uh, also you, okay? This is me and you over here. Now, as you go through life, it doesn't take long. I mean... Man, it could be day one. I'm not sure. It doesn't take long, but you just start amassing these, uh, these tally marks, right? I mean, it doesn't take long to get some serious marks against you. And then it feels like it's a snowball. You know, it just starts going downhill, and it's like, oh, man, they're just, they're just adding up now. I don't, I don't even know. I've lost track. And, you, and then you start understanding, especially as you start reading the Bible, that Every thought matters. That like you could get some tally marks just for thoughts that you're having. Everybody's like, man, just keep writing. Just fill the thing in because if if we're going there. And then you find out words, like the words you speak. Oh, yeah, but, uh, you know, I said that and they didn't hear me. Well, it doesn't matter. God heard you. And so you go, oh, no, I got it. And then you read that I got to give an account for every single idle word that I speak. And you go, oh, God, just add, add some more marks then, you know, and then things, then you find out in the New Testament that to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it is sin. It's not just the bad things you do. It's when you know that you should have done right and you just stayed neutral and didn't do it. Oh my gosh, just add some more or just, it's just piling up now. And then maybe in the course of the thing, you do something good. It don't happen very often, but... You know, one day you had a moment, just a moment where you weren't selfish and you just did something for someone else. And so praise God, you got a little, you got a little mark on your side. That is so good. And then you go back over here and you just, you get back, you get back after it, just having so much fun. And how many of you want to, instead of just the little marks, you want to come up here and start listing some of your sins? Because I can write them in if anybody wants to, no, we'll just keep using the marks. That's fine. We don't have to. And some of you, I mean, I would need to expand this whiteboard just a ways, you know, and just keep, because the the marks are just so many. Then we have another problem, because we get to the New Testament, and we find out, well, it wasn't really good enough that you didn't commit adultery, because it was in your heart, and so this one thing that you thought was good, you find out, oh, no. That one should have been over here in this column. And then you go, well, yeah, but I didn't ever murder anybody. See, that's one of the good things. And then you find out, yeah, but if you hated your brother, oh, no, that now we got to move this one over here. And then before you find out, actually, most of these over here have been tainted by some wrong motive or sin or selfishness or thing. And that before you really start to look at it, you find out that there really ain't very much over here, if any. And if you stand before God like that, this is how you're going to be judged. You're going to be judged based on this. And even if you think your column over here is full of good marks, one moment in the glory of God, one moment in the holiness and perfection of God, you're going to find out that this side is completely empty. And you go, well, what about all the good things I'm doing? Well, I think they matter. I think they mean something to God, but make no mistake about it. There's not a single thing that anyone does that is not influenced and tainted by this sinful world that we live in. And when people like Isaiah, that were very godly people, the first moment that they stood in the glory of God, they fell to their face and began saying, I am a sinner, I am unclean, God cleanse my lips. Because they didn't have a revelation of how they really were. And I don't think God wants you walking around feeling like that all the time. It's just that when you get into the presence of God, you would find out the real situation going on here. Now, on the other side, we have Jesus. 
And the Bible says that Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. All 613 commandments. I'm going to have to write left-handed here so y'all can see. Every single one that he fulfilled perfectly. The Bible says that he never sinned. Not one tally mark. That he was the perfect sacrifice. That means in thought, in word, in action, every single thing that he did was perfect, righteous, and good before God. There's not one single claim against him. And the Bible tells us that if even one mark were put over here, even one mark were put over here, that he would now have to answer for his own life. In other words, his death would not have been for you. His death would have been for his own mark. But not one sin. This is the reason why he was the perfect substitute for you. Every single thing that he did was good, righteous, and perfect. And let me read this passage to you out of 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Y'all remember when I read a few weeks ago where it's talking about Judgment Day? And it said, great, small, they all stood before God and books were opened. And the books were the record of every single person's life. Jesus, Jesus said, you're going to give an account for every idle word. In, in other words, there's not a detail missing. Things that you forgot about. Things you didn't even know because you were so wrapped up in your own selfishness. You didn't even realize you were hurting somebody else. Things you said, think, it's all there. And it's all there from God's perspective of how it was done. So it's all there. Those, those books, there's a record of it. But look at this, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, this is interesting. He says, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. In other words, not a single mark against him. God made him to be sin, to embody sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Bill, can I get you to help me for just a second? So the gospel message is that even though our lives were filled with sin and his life was filled with righteousness, the Bible says that God reversed it. See, that's the gospel message, is that actually there was an exchange... That took place. And that your sin, the Bible says, was taken off. Let's see this. And that your sin, the Bible says, that it was placed on him. Now, that's not going to be just perfect, but you get the idea. And that his righteousness was placed on you. And you go, well, that doesn't, seem, that doesn't seem fair. That's why it's called good news. That's why it's called peace. That's why he said great joy. Because your sinless, your sinful life, the Bible says, was put on him, and that's why he died in your place. You go, well, he didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, but he volunteered to take your place. He volunteered to, to become sin for you, the one who knew no sin. He volunteered to become sin and to take the sin of the world upon himself. Why did he qualify? Because he had none of his own sin. He was the perfect lamb. Your sin was placed on him, and he was punished as if it were you. He bore the punishment of your sin. But on the other side, on the other hand, his righteousness was placed on you. See, this is the other part of the gospel message that a lot of people don't understand. They go, well, my sins have been forgiven. That's true, but you're not just neutral. It's not like you're, I could have just taken this eraser and I could have just erased your bad sin and go, yeah, that's right. All your sin is gone. That's not what happened. 
That's not what happened. God didn't just take a giant eraser and wipe your sin off. No, the Bible says that his righteousness, his perfection was taken off of him and put on you. So when you stand before God on judgment day and books are open, there's only one book that matters for you. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name is in that book, then you are, not, you are not answering for all of your bad deeds. You are answering for the righteousness of God that was placed on you. Now, I understand how people think about this. They, they, they shake their head and they go, that just can't be. That just can't, that just can't be. Listen, it's why it's called the good news. It's good news. If it were that you had to answer for God... For every little sin that you've done and every little thing that you've committed and every little fault that you have, how many know that's not good news? <laughs> that's not good news. That's bad news. And, by the way, it's just the way it was in the Old Testament. But, but in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, people were forgiven of their sin by a, by a lamb or a goat that was slaughtered and that wiped and covered their sin. And we got a whole book in the Bible, the book of Hebrews, that explains how much better the sacrifice of Jesus is and did far beyond what the blood of goats and calves could do. So that now we have a better standing and a better righteousness before God than they even had in the Old Testament. Some people act like we're still under the Old Testament, like everything that we do we're going to be punished for. Actually, the Bible says that the cross destroyed the curse of the law, that you're no longer under the curse of the law. Do you know what the curse of the law was? Go read it in Deuteronomy chapter 28. The curse of the law is all the bad things that are going to happen to you for breaking the law. If you follow the law, you get the blessing of the law. All these good things are going to happen. If you break the law, all these bad things are going to happen. And that was the mode of operation. Do good, get bad. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. In the New Testament, he says, no, the curse of the law is now destroyed. There is no curse of the law. Meaning God is not wanting to punish you, judge you, uh, bring condemnation on you for your sin. Now this is what happened at the moment of salvation, right? At the moment of salvation, when you became saved, everything in your past not only was wiped away, and you really could say it wasn't wiped away, it was placed on him. And see, that's the problem with sin. People think, well... How come, Jesus didn't, how come Jesus had to die? Why didn't, we just, why didn't he just forgive us? In other words, why did, why did we even need this? Why didn't he just come and wipe our sin out? He could have just forgiven us. No, because God is a just God, and every sin has to have a payment. The Bible actually tells that for sin, blood has to be shed. So imagine just in our, in our day, if you had a judge... And their whole job was to enact justice, but constantly they were just letting criminals off and, and things that were happening. They just kind of swept it under the rug, and they were never giving any justice. They were never putting anybody behind bars. Would you think that was a good judge? Would you think that was a good person? No. that's So the penalty had to be paid. It was not an option to just sweep it under the rug. The penalty had to be paid, but here's what God said. He said, it has to be paid. But I love them so much that I want my son to pay it and not them. And so he put your sin on Jesus, but then he took his righteousness and put it on you. We, they're two separate things. See, we could talk about what it means that your sin is gone. We could spend a whole sermon series on what it means that you're righteous before God and what that has now qualified you for. It's exceedingly abundantly above anything that you could ask or think. So the question that always comes is, well, if this is the case, then it would seem sin doesn't really matter. Well, that's not true at all because there's this interesting sort of like dichotomy in the scripture of that you can't purchase salvation by works. In other words, you couldn't work for this. This was a gift. But that once you have received salvation, there's a heart change that happens. And once that heart change has happened you will not continue to live in sin. And so here's the way the Bible looks at it. It goes, once you've received salvation, you're a different person. Your, your heart changes. You don't want to sin anymore. It doesn't mean you will never sin. If you do sin, we have this in operation. But anybody who is living in unrepentant 
sin, what the Bible does is now question, did you ever have that heart change in the first place? See, the Bible calls it into question. It doesn't go, well, because you're, sin- because you're sinning, you lose your salvation. No, you didn't, you didn't earn your salvation by holy living. You can't lose your salvation by unholy living. But here's the issue. When your heart is rotten and your heart is unsaved before God, you will have certain fruit in your life. And when your heart has been transformed, you will have certain fruit in your life. And if you sin, praise God that there's forgiveness. But no person who's been born again, no person who's been saved and their heart has been transformed is looking for ways to abuse the grace of God. And the Bible talks about that. In other words, if I look at this, if I look at this grace message and this story and I go, oh, well, that means I can just keep doing what I'm doing or God's okay with my sin, then you haven't read the Bible and you, you, haven't, you haven't given your life to God in the first place. That's how the scripture would call it in, into question. So it absolutely matters what we do and don't do. And it actually does tell us something about our state and our condition with God. Our actions and our lives and our fruit does tell us something about our relationship with God. It's just that you could never pay for this and you could never earn this. It was gifted to you. And since that's true... The Bible constantly goes, or asks the question, since this is true, then how should we live? In other words, in thankfulness to God, in reverence to God for doing this, how should we live? Is it right that we spit in his face? Is it right that we continue to, to live in sin and be full of sin, knowing what God has done? Of course not. That'd be like those of you that are married That'd be like your spouse coming to you and saying, listen, there's nothing you can do that will ever cause me to divorce you. I'm going to be loyal to you for life. And you're going, well, great. I can go do what I want to do then. And then you just run out doing everything that you want to do. Well, that, that's, that's an issue, right? And so the Bible talks about it. No one, no one would do that, that who's been truly transformed by God. So if that is you, then you need to question, well, have I, have I truly believed and have I truly accepted salvation into my life? But this morning, what I, I hope that I'm talking to a group of people that have received, and I just want you to know how good it really is. And that's the point of the Christmas story. Amen? Amen. Now watch this. You're going to love this. Matthew chapter 11. I want to show you this. Matthew 11 Verse 7. This is going to show you your status with God. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John the Baptist. And he asked him, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Because John basically lived out in the wilderness. He was kind of a wild man, you know, eating locusts and honey and he was... He was like an obscurity. You know, people would see him and he's just, this is a strange guy, clothed in camel hair, you know, kind of weird guy. And he asks him, he says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. Jesus is trying to be funny now. He's making jokes. He's kind of being sarcastic. What did you go out in there to what, Why did y'all, in other words, why did y'all leave the city, go all the way out into the country? What, just to see the scenery? See a, a reed shaking in the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? In other words, no, you didn't go out there to see somebody that was refined. You could have saw that in the city. You could have saw that where you were at. What made you, he's asking them, what made you go all the way out into the wilderness to see this guy, John the Baptist? He said, what, did you go out there to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear uh, soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see then? In other words, why did you go out there? A prophet? Did you go out to see a prophet? And he said, yes, and I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Man, Paul's right there. Jesus just made an amazing statement. He said, I'm telling you that of everyone who's ever been born up to this point, those born among women, so he's, he's like kind of, that's a way of excluding himself because, you know, he had a supernatural birth. 
But he said, I'm telling you that everyone up until now, no one greater in the eyes of God, no one greater in the kingdom of God has arisen than John the Baptist. Not Moses, not Abraham, not Noah, not Job. No, no one has risen who is greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus just told us. He said, I tell you, those who were born among women, no one greater than John the Baptist has risen. In other words, this is the greatest man, the greatest prophet, the most holy man that has ever lived. He's greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Noah, greater than everyone. And he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, what does he mean by that? <laughs> you got to get this. He's looking at John the Baptist. You can tell. Jesus doesn't give out compliments very easily. He looks at John. He says, John's the greatest man to ever live. Greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Noah, greater than everyone. He says, yet, those who come to God under this new way, in the new kingdom of God, through the cross... He said, Though the one who's considered least in the kingdom of God. In other words, the lowest one in the whole kingdom already has a status that is greater than John the Baptist. How can that be possible? Because of this. How can that be possible? How could he make that statement? Because the righteousness of Jesus was imputed, the Bible says, a, a, a theological word, imputed. His righteousness was imputed to you, so therefore that makes you greater than John the Baptist. In the eyes of heaven, how God views you. Okay, it doesn't mean that you are in fact greater than John the Baptist, meaning that you lived a holier life or a better life than him. No. What's been gifted to you is a status that makes you of higher influence and higher status than John the Baptist in the kingdom of God. Now, it takes it takes faith to believe this. This is why salvation comes by faith. Because it takes faith to believe this. You hear this and you go, that's, surely that's not how God sees me. I mean, even though you're reading it straight out of Jesus' mouth, it takes faith to believe it. And let me make a quick point about this. And, and actually, I, I, I want to ask you that question. Okay, can you believe this? Can you believe it? I understand. I know there are doubts right now. In this room, there are doubts in people's hearts, in their mind, all, all, you know, already there's rational thinking. There's, there's all these things that are, the wheels are turning. And, and I'm asking you, can you believe this? Because this is how salvation comes into our life. By believing that Jesus Christ is Lord and that his death paid for your sin and that because of it, you are a son or daughter of God. This is how salvation comes into our life. So believing this is paramount. And let me make one quick uh, point about belief. As a pastor, I talk to people all the time who say things something like this. All right, I'm, I'm kind of uh, mixing a lot of different conversations. But the, the general idea is, well, I just don't know if I can believe that. Or I don't know if I believe the Bible, or I don't know if I believe this, and this is, this is what I've learned over time, is that whatever you actually do believe is not based on evidence to begin with. What you actually do believe is also based on faith. You just may not have realized it. For example, if I tell you George Washington was the first president, were you there? Just follow me for a second, okay? Did you know him? Did you see him? Well, no, but I read the history book. Well, who wrote that history book? Well, you know, so-and-so. And then were they there? No, they read somebody else who wrote about it, and they read somebody else who wrote about it. You go, well, well there's, a, there's a Declaration of Independence in the, in the museum in the Library of Congress. Have you seen it? Well, no, but I saw pictures of it. Even if you did see it, how do you know that that's what it is? Are you following me? I'm not calling any of that into question. I believe in it too. I'm just saying, were you there? Did you see it written? Did you see it signed? No, what you're doing is you are trusting someone else that you have deemed 
worthy to know what they're talking about. You believe what someone else has told you. You believe a book you read. You believe a professor who told you. But no matter what you believe, it's based on faith. I mean, none of us, you know, just like right now, you, you, you hear this, you go, well, the earth is circling the sun. Did any of you ever go into outer space and see that? How do you know that? Well, because I believe people that say they have done that. See, it's all based on faith. Every bi- our whole world is based on faith. Every single thing that you say you believe is based on faith. So that's why I don't, I don't, I'm kind of chuckle to myself when someone super intellectual or thinks that they're super intellectual starts telling me, oh, well, I don't believe that because I read this and what about that? And Listen, you're doing the exact same thing that I'm doing. It's just you have more confidence in some secular professor who wrote that book than you do the Word of God. But you haven't ever seen anything that he's talking about. You just believe him over this. You've just chosen to believe him over God. And here's what I've known about man. Is that man will revise their so-called knowledge every so many years. Why? Because they found out they were wrong. You know, I was just reading a... uh, This is probably neither here nor there, but I I found it interesting. I was reading... uh, something not too long ago about how they were saying, well, these dinosaur bones were 75 million years old and this, that, or the other. And they said, well, but then they found one dinosaur bone. Actually, they found several. They found one dinosaur bone that still had soft tissue in it. Well, every single thing they know about fossilization, they said that's not possible. So rather than adjust what they want to believe, they just adjusted how long soft tissue takes to decay now. They already had like set laws about it. But instead of saying, well, maybe it's not 75 million years old, they said, well, we're going to just adjust how long it takes soft tissue to decay now. So what is that? Well, it just, people, here's what you find out. People just really believe what they want to believe, and any new information that comes, they're going to figure out how to fit it into that paradigm of what they already believe because that's what they want to believe. And so if I believe Professor X or book this or document this, how's that any different than looking at my Bible and going, I believe Luke, I believe Matthew, I believe Mark, I believe Jesus, I believe Paul. These are eyewitnesses. These are documents as well. But don't make any mistake about it. Don't let anybody ever tell you, oh, well, you're a person of faith. Hey, everybody's a person of faith. It's just what do you really, what are you putting your faith in? And I've chosen to believe and put my faith in the Word of God and what He says. Amen? Amen. So, as I'm talking to you about these things, don't sit there and think, well, I don't know if I can believe that. Well, you believe plenty that you don't have any evidence for. You just have somebody else's word, but you're believing them. And what does that say about us, that we have more confidence in, in that than we do the Word of God? Now, I don't know if that's you or where you're at. I know we're, we're a room full of believers this morning. But just putting that out there. Romans chapter 4, verse 20. God, uh, Paul's talking about Abraham and the promise that God made to him. He said, no unbelief made him waver concerning the pro- promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. See, that phrase is very important. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. It doesn't say that Abraham was perfectly righteous. All you got to do is go read the Bible and you'll find out Abraham was not perfectly righteous. The Bible is very clear about it. The Bible doesn't try to paint Abraham as perfectly righteous. But the Bible says that because of his faith, God counted righteousness to him and then what he says verse 23 but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone but for ours also in other words that's how we're going to be made righteous as well it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So he says this is the same process that as we receive righteousness as Abraham did, which is through faith. When you believe the good news, when you believe the gospel message, 
there's a miracle that happens. Your spirit comes alive. Your spirit is born again. All of your debt is wiped away. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to you. And because of that, you have a standing before God. And God sees you a certain way. And he views you a certain way. That's why I don't ever walk around with my head low. I'm just a dirty old sinner. It's like people take pride in that. Well, we're all just sinners before the Lord. I think that needs a little revision. We, some of us may be sinners before the Lord because we haven't engaged in this process. But if you've, if you've received salvation, you're not a dirty old sinner before the Lord. That'd be like somebody that was in, in prison and they received a, a pardon and they were exonerated and they're still just walking around as if they were still in prison. No, you're free. You, you can feel bad about it the rest of your life if you want. <laughs> but you're free. You can vote again. <laughs> You can own a firearm again. You can live life again. You can be an American citizen again. Uh, because legally, you've been pardoned and exonerated. And you can walk around with your head low, feeling bad about it all the time. But here's how I think about it. God counted me valuable enough to allow me to engage in this process. So I don't walk around going, oh, I'm just a worthy old sinner. I don't deserve anything from God. Well, God said I did. <laughs> God said I did. God, God counted me worthy and said I did deserve it. Not because of what I did. That's just how much he loves me. So I don't walk around thinking like that. And the reason we're talking about this in fellowship is because if you don't think correctly about this, then it does affect your fellowship with God. If you don't think like this, then you will see yourself all the time as an old dirty sinner. And every time you go before God, all you want to do is repent. And all you want to do is cry. And you think God's mad at you. You think God doesn't like you. And you just are under condemnation 24-7. That's exactly how Satan wants you to feel. The Bible says that he's the accuser of the brethren. He, he lives night and day to accuse you before God. And it takes faith to go, wait a minute, that's not how God sees me. God sees me like this. Because the righteousness of God has been imputed to me. Are there still natural consequences for our sin? Absolutely. If you sin, if you go, if you go in tomorrow and you cuss your boss out, you might get fired. Hey, you repent, you're still righteous before God. You're going to have some natural earthly consequences because of it. You choose to do, a lot, I could go down the list. You, you choose to do a lot of things in life, you're going to, against the way God said it, you're going to have major problems in your life. If you, if you choose to read God's word and you do it your way, you're going to have tons of problems and issues because God's commands are not arbitrary. They, the, God's commands are what they are because that's how things work and that's the right way to do them. No different than your owner manual for your car. You go, if you go out today and you put water in your gas tank because you're tired of paying high gas prices, uh, you, that's going to be a bad consequence because the owner manual didn't put in there to put gas in your car because they're mean. They said put gas in your car because it's correct. And it's right, and it's how they built it so they know how it's going to function. So when you read your Bible, that's what you're seeing. God's saying, do this, don't do this. Why? Because I created it all. And I know how it works. And I know it's going to be good for you, and I know it's going to hurt you. So when you sin, you have a lot of natural problems and a lot of natural consequences. And sometimes people think, well, God just mad at me. He's judging me. I knew I shouldn't have done that. Well, not really. Not really, because in the New Testament, your sin was placed on him. And when you understand the New Testament, that actually the Bible says for those that have rejected this, the Bible says that wrath is being stored up for them. See, what does that mean? It means they're not experiencing it now. Those who sin, if you have problems, it's because there's natural consequences that come. But actually the wrath of God, the Bible says, is being stored up. And it's waiting for you to fully and finally and completely reject this. Because if you do, then you will experience the complete and total wrath of God. But why is it being stored up? Because he wants you to repent and engage in this process. Why? Because it's the will of God that none would perish. It's the will of God that everyone would come to the knowledge of the truth. So when, when, when a person is sinning, God's not angry at them. Look, if God was angry and wanted to punish people, man, I've seen some things going on in this nation that I'm like, you, and you know, you ask yourself, how come certain states don't just fall off the map? You know, I'm not going to say which ones. I'm not going to call them out. But how come there's just not like a great earthquake or something that just happened? Or, you know, that's why people, there's like a hurricane or something. Go, oh, God's judging this. I could get into the foolishness of that, but I don't believe that at all. Why? Because wrath is being stored up. It's not being poured out. 
we're in a season of grace where God is giving everybody the moment to repent. But guess what? In the book of Revelations, you read about what happens when that window closes. And when that window closes, those who have received this gift are safe and secure with God. And those who haven't, they are still under the wrath of God. And they will experience the wrath of God at that time and for eternity. Last thing I'm going to read this morning, Romans 10, 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. You see, this is a different kind of righteousness. Righteousness that comes by adhering and following to the 613 commandments of the law. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What does this righteousness by faith say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You go, is it that easy? Yes, that's the good news. This is how salvation occurs. Believing and confessing it with your mouth. For the heart, for with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Could he have made it any easier? I believe that's why we have the gospel as it is. How much simpler can you believe it? Do you believe God? Do you believe the gospel? If the answer is yes, he said, confess it with your mouth, proclaim it. I'm a son of God. I believe in God. I believe Jesus was the son of God. I believe he died for my sin. I believe he was resurrected three days later. I believe that my sins were placed on him and that his righteousness was placed on me. I believe it. He said, well, if you believe it, you're a son, you're a daughter of God. Amen. Amen. Now that is the Christmas story. That's what it's really about. Thank God for the birth. But it was all that came after that mattered. Amen.